We're in Matthew 1, 18 through 25 today. When my little boy, Will, who's now a big boy, 18 years old, uh, when he was a little bitty guy, four or five years old, he was in a children's choir. This is at our previous church. And one Christmas season on a Wednesday night, they decided to have a little Christmas pageant in the church parlor. Now, the church parlor was a, a small room adjacent to the sanctuary that looked like what would happen if somebody grave, gave your grandma a bunch of money and told her to decorate, decorate a room, right? And nothing against grandmas. I had two grandmas that I loved dearly, but they would have loved our church parlor. It, was, it had green carpet and big thick curtains and a fireplace that never had a fire in it and a chandelier and big, huge wingback chairs, and it was the kind of place that, you know, where, you know, it was a good place for a tea party or a small reception. Well, this, this, was, this was the moment when everybody, all the little kids were dressed up in their biblical getup. And Will, of course, was a shepherd. I have a picture of him somewhere, of him in his little shepherd outfit. Um, but he wasn't Joseph. The little friend of his, ironically named Samson, was Joseph. Uh, so Joseph was all, you know, dressed in his biblical garb. There was a, there was a Mary there. I can't remember what that little girl's name was. But she did all the work. She got all the notice. She was the star of the show, right? Mary swaddled the little baby Jesus, which was a doll, of course. We're not giving a newborn to a four-year-old. Uh, she swaddled baby Jesus and she placed him in the manger and she greeted the shepherds and she, she did everything. Meanwhile, Joseph just stood there being Joseph. He didn't really have anything to do. And at one point, about halfway through, as you know, the, the choir leader is reading the narration and everybody's acting this out, Joseph looks around and notices that one of those wingback chairs is like two feet away from him. And he thinks, you know, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so he sat down, put his feet up, just watched the rest of the show. And I, I heard, distinctly heard this woman's voice behind me say, yep, he's a man, all right. <laughs> deeply, deeply offensive, but accurate. But... Uh, we tend to see Joseph that way, don't we? We tend to see him as sort of part of the furniture of the Christmas story. He's there. I mean, your nativity set wouldn't look complete without him. But what does he really do? Mary does all the work. Shepherds, wise men, they show up. Angels sing. What does Joseph do except just stand there looking befuddled? And yet, when we read the actual story in the scriptures, we see that this man, Joseph, he had a dilemma on his hands. And a dilemma that the way he ended up handling it shows us what a righteous man, a righteous woman, what a righteous person really is. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in church, I was a prenatal Baptist. I mean, I was there every Sunday, every Wednesday, even before I was born. And so I grew up, got saved when I was nine. That was a real salvation. I can, I can testify that I really knew Jesus at that point. And the only bad thing about that because everything about that was good, except for this. When you grow up that way, you have a tendency to start to measure things by saying, I'm good because I go to church. I'm good because I follow the rules. And some of you identify, right? You have a hard time not judging others. You have a hard time not seeing yourself as a little bit morally superior because you are so faithful to go to church. You are so good at following the rules. And maybe, you know, when you watch those heathens on television or your next door neighbor or the coworker that acts, you know, in a way that you find offensive, you, you have a tendency to look down on them because you think you're living a righteous life. And there are others perhaps in this room who would say, well, that's not me at all. I, I'm, I'm coming to church. I'm trying my best, but I'm, I am not measuring up and I know I'm not a righteous person. In fact, I don't think I'll ever be able to be a righteous person. I just can't toe the line like you rule keepers can. But Joseph, 
And this story shows us what real righteousness is, and it isn't what we typically think it is. If you've been in church at all at Christmas time, or if you've read the Bible, you know this story. But we're going to read it again. Matthew 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, like I said, I've heard this story over and over again all my life. And once I got to be an adult and started reading the Bible for myself, I read it year after year, every time that story would come up in Matthew. And I never really realized until a few years ago when verse 19 says that Joseph, being a just man, did not want to put her to shame. I always thought that just meant Joseph was a decent guy. He was a nice person. So he did the nice thing. I didn't realize that was, it's using an actual Hebrew term that's a title. It's, a, it's an important term. The word just or righteous, just man or righteous man in Hebrew is sadiq. Sadiq is how it's pronounced. And that's a specific term for a specific kind of individual. Joseph was a Sadiq, which meant that on the Sabbath day, he didn't do any work. Even though Galilee, where Joseph lived, was the area of Israel where there were more Gentiles than any other part of the land. And so he could have made a lot of money by saying, I will work. And like my other Jewish carpenters, I will work for you on the Sabbath day. He didn't do that. When he worked for someone, he charged them a fair price. He didn't jack up his rates. If he employed others, he paid them a fair salary. He ate, he didn't eat unclean foods. He didn't hang out with the wrong people. He followed the law of Moses as best he could. And this is a big deal. Now you think about when you see someone who's taller and richer and happier and more successful and better looking than you are, you always go, yeah, I kind of wish I was that guy. Every Jewish male wanted to be a Sadiq because in Israel, what it meant to live a, a, a meaningful life was to be a righteous man or a righteous woman. And, you know, in the same way that a baseball player dreams that someday they'll make the major leagues or a, a businessman hopes that someday he'll get that corner office. Or, or a professor hopes that someday he'll get his work uh, published in a peer-reviewed journal. That's what every Jewish man wanted for his life. It meant for Joseph, it meant that his fellow Jews were, were more likely to hire him to do work for them. And, and they were more likely to mar want to marry their kids to his kids. And, and it meant most of all that someday if he kept living a righteous life, he would achieve the, the, the dream of every Jewish man to be an elder at the gates sitting there with a long gray beard, and all the younger people as they walked past would bow their heads in honor and they'd bring to him their, their questions and their disputes and they would judge the city and, and lead the city together. And that was his future if he kept living the way he was living. So you can imagine when Mary came to him and we didn't, we didn't read this story, but Mary had had a visit from the angel Gabriel. And keep in mind, these are two very young people who don't know each other well. 
Bible doesn't give their age, but scholars have told us that, that Jewish men and women got married at a very young age back then. Uh, picture Mary being 13 to 15 years old. I mean, we've got some 13 to 15 year old girls right here in the first and second and third row. Can you imagine them shouldering that kind of burden? Joseph was probably 17 or 18. Their parents would have arranged the marriage. That's how it was done. You didn't date back then, right? Your parents worked it out. So if they knew each other at all, it was from a distance. It was maybe Mary was the kid sister of one of Joseph's friends or, or just someone he saw in the marketplace once in a while there in Nazareth. And now she comes to him and says, an angel came to me. I'm with child and it's the son of God. And the Bible doesn't tell us how Joseph felt about that. But I'm a man, so I can imagine how he felt. At first, he's probably thinking, this child has lost her mind. She's, she's clearly gone off the deep end. And then later, he was probably a little bit angry. I picture Joseph, if he was me at least, picking up a good piece of lumber and saying, let's find this guy who defiled my fiance and let's teach him a lesson. But Joseph didn't end up doing that. It says because he was a just man, he didn't want to put her to open shame. See, most men, would have shamed Mary publicly. They would have spread it around the city. This is not a moral woman. She has gotten pregnant while engaged to me, outside of marriage. It would have made him look better. Then people would know, I didn't do this thing. He could even, according to the law, have had her stoned to death for adultery, for, uh, for fornication. But Joseph didn't do that. So when Matthew calls Joseph a just man, a sadiq, he's using the term not the way that people back then used it. He's using it the way God uses it to say being a just man, a righteous person is more than just following the rules and being in synagogue every Sabbath day. It's showing mercy. It's showing justice. It's showing faithfulness. Joseph decided in his heart, I'm going I'm to break this engagement quietly. Engagement was a big deal in Israel. You couldn't just, you know, say, give me back my ring. You, you had to actually go through a ceremony. You had to do a legal proceeding. But Joseph decided, all it takes is two witnesses. We'll get two witnesses. We'll get this done. No one has to know. If she wants to go live with a cousin in another town until the baby's born and then come back and make up a story about uh, getting pregnant there and, and her husband dying, and, and, and everybody loves a widow, right? So she can do that. She can still preserve her name, her reputation. This is what it means to be just. But it brings up a question. You probably never thought about this. Why didn't God tell Joseph at the same time he told Mary? Angel Gabriel shows up to Mary, gives her the good news. Joseph's left twisting in the wind. He's left wondering, wrestling, doubting, trying to figure out what to do. Why did God do that to Joseph? He could have told him at the same time. You're not going to like my answer. See, God knows what he's doing. He doesn't make mistakes and he loves us. So what this tells us, along with a lot of other stories in the scriptures that give us the same message, is that God is not usually out to make our lives less complicated. I wish I could tell you something different because I know that some of you right now are dealing with some difficult questions, some doubts, some uncertainty, you're in some situations where you don't know how things are going to turn out and you, you would love for God to just show up and say, okay, let me tell you what else is going to happen. But he hasn't. 
And it's not because of you. It's not because you're doing something wrong. That's often how God does things. He loves us and yet somehow he lets us go through that painful, scary time. I think because he knows that time of searching is good for us somehow. It makes us more diligent. It makes us more faithful. It draws us closer to him. We can trust him as we just sang, the battle belongs to you, O Lord. I'll fight on my knees. But don't be surprised if you have to wait a while to figure out what God's up to, how it's gonna turn out. And even when he answers our questions, we don't always like the answers. See, I'm sure that when the angel appeared to Joseph, he was hoping the angel would say, Joseph, I'm sorry. I'm sorry your fiance cheated on you. Don't worry, I got some even, someone even better. Someone who's gonna be faithful, someone who's gonna be exactly what you need. You're good. But he didn't say that. Instead, he said, Joseph, don't be afraid to take this woman as your, hus- as your wife. Now, that's an unusual thing to say. Why would he say, don't be afraid? Well, I think there are two things I can think of that Joseph may have been afraid of. And one is that he would lose his status as a Sadiq, that people would see his fiance's growing stomach and say, look what Joseph did. We thought he was a righteous man, but apparently he's not. He would lose all that he had worked so hard to achieve. The other thing I think he might have feared is that am I marrying a woman who's promiscuous? Is she gonna change once she marries me? What if she doesn't? What if I have a wife that runs around on me? That's gonna be miserable. God says, don't be afraid. Marry this woman, raise this child. And that's the other part of the equation. It's one thing to marry an unwed mother. It's quite another to raise a son that's not your own. Anybody who's a parent in this room can, can probably agree with me on two things. Number one, Having your kids was the best thing that ever happened to you other than accepting Christ as your savior. That's number one. Number two, it's the hardest job you've ever had, right? Because even if your kids are really good kids, they still keep you up at night. They still make you cry sometimes. They still cause you all kinds of worry and anxiety and, and, and trouble and lost sleep and, and money. Good grief, kids are expensive. And, and I mean, it's, it's all this stuff. So it's easier not to be a parent than to be a parent. So why would you wanna do that for someone that doesn't even bear your DNA, that won't ever grow up to look like you? I mean, there are people, there are families in this church that have adopted children. And I look at that and I say, wow, what an act of love. No, what, what, a, what a vision of the love of God. That's what God was asking Joseph to do. He was adopting a child, not because he saw a mother and child and said, well, he, that's a cute little guy. I think I'll make him my son. And not because he couldn't have kids of his own and so he was able, no, he was doing this or he was being asked to do this simply because God said so. And Joseph knew three things, by the way. He knew that nobody in Nazareth was gonna believe this was a virgin birth because it had never happened before and it's never happened since. No one would blame him if he walked away. And number three, God didn't need him. It's not like the salvation of the world was resting on Joseph's shoulders. I mean, if Joseph walked away, God's still gonna send his Messiah. The Messiah is still gonna save the world. It's not like Joseph was needed. So why did Joseph say yes? Side note, by the way, Joseph didn't even know the half of it. 
He didn't know that this baby was going to be born in a city so crowded that they'd have to lay him down in a, in a manger full of straw. He didn't know that this, this child, before he was even two years old, would have a contract on his head by the king of the nation, and they'd have to flee to Egypt as, as, as refugees. He didn't know that there would be times when this child growing up would just totally baffle him. I mean, both my kids were smarter than me from a very young age, but can you imagine being the father of the son of God? You know, we see just a taste of that in the only story in the Bible where we see Jesus as a child, when Jesus wanders off from them and when they're in Jerusalem for Passover and they go looking for him for three days and they finally find him in the temple and they're like, what are you doing to us? And he says, huh? no big deal, I'm in my father's house. And I'm sure there were lots of moments like that where Joseph said, I don't know what this kid's doing. I don't know, I don't know where he gets the thoughts he thinks, the things he says. It, it, I don't get it. He was signing on for all of that and more when he could have just walked away. So why did he stay? Why did he do the will of God? See, here's what we need to see. Here's, here's the whole point of my message today. Christianity today very much presents faith as a way to get things from God. That's what faith is, right? That's what you hear if you listen to TV preachers. Heck, in a lot of real flesh and blood churches, you hear that, that faith is how you get things from God. So, so God has all the good stuff that we want. So what we need to do is just go and, and figure out what it takes to get that stuff from him. And that's called faith, right? That's what the Bible is or the way we see the Bible. It's the story of people who went to God when they needed stuff and the way they got God to meet their needs until you actually read the Bible, which again, I highly recommend. You actually read the Bible and what do you find? It's not the story of people getting things from God. It's the story of God coming to people and saying, okay, you're here, but I want you to go over there. Okay, you're comfortable doing this, but I want you to go do that. Okay, you like these people, but I want you to go talk to those people. And, and you might say to me, yeah, but Jeff, what about the miracles? Yeah, there's, there are miracles in the Bible. There's, there's Moses standing in front of the Red Sea and the waters part and the children of Israel cross. There's Daniel being saved in the lion's den, spends the night among lions and doesn't get scratched. There's Jesus rising from the dead on Easter Sunday. But why did those miracles take place? Why did those people even need miracles? The only reason Moses needed the Red Sea to part was because when he was 80 years old and very comfortably tending his father-in-law's sheep in the deserts of Midian, God came to him and said, no, I want you to leave this and go back to Egypt where they know you as a murderer and lead my people to freedom. Yes, it's risky, but that's my will. And he did. Otherwise, he wouldn't have needed the Red Sea parted. Why was Daniel in the lion's den? Because when the kingdom of Persia said, you cannot pray to any God but the king of Persia, Daniel said, oh yeah? Well, I'm gonna pray to my king who is, Yeshu, who is, who is Yahweh. And he even left the doors and the windows open because he wanted everybody to know, my king is Yahweh. And he got thrown in the lion's den. Why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? Because he knew that we needed salvation. And he left his home in heaven and took on human flesh, because a God can't die, took on human flesh and put his life in our place. That's why he needed to be raised. So what is my point? My point is that faith is not getting things from God. It's how God gets us to fulfill his purpose. Sometimes we start to lose faith, start to doubt God. 
when we say, I don't see any miracles. I don't see any evidence that God's at work in my life. If he's real, he's not doing anything for me. But maybe it's because we never get off the pew. You know, these pews are pretty comfortable. Maybe we should make them rough. Keep you all awake. But more importantly, it would remind you the whole point of the Christian life is not to show up here on Sunday mornings. I'm glad you show up. I want you to. But that's not the point. What happens here is supposed to equip you for what happens out there. And if you want to see God work, you have to go out where God is. And God usually is around the people who are hurting the worst. You have to take a risk. Instead of asking, how do I get God to do what I want? We should be asking, what does God want me to do that I'm not doing? And when's the last time you asked that question? If you want to to play it safe, if you want a comfortable, uncomplicated life, you're never going to see God work. And it won't work anyway. Life gets complicated whether you want it to or not. But if you follow God out where he leads, when you take a risk, when you step out in faith, when you do what he says, you put yourself in position to see him do amazing, amazing things. Now, we all know what Joseph did. He risked his reputation He complicated his own life. He took this young woman who he barely knew and made her his wife. And he raised this little boy Jesus as his own. We don't know what kind of father Joseph was. Did you know that Joseph doesn't speak once in the Bible? Not once. Some of you ladies probably think that makes him the perfect man. Just shut up and bring the paycheck home, right? Joseph was probably dead by the time Jesus was an adult. The only time we don't, we don't hear anything about him after Jesus is 12 years old. By the time he starts his ministry around the age of 30, there's no mention of Joseph at all. So he probably died during Jesus's teenage years or his young adulthood. But we know three things. There are three clues to what kind of dad Joseph was. Number one, Jesus had a trade. Joseph, Jesus didn't learn to be a carpenter by going to a trade school. The job of every Jewish man in that time was to teach his son how to earn a living. We know that Jesus, number two, knew the scriptures. That also was every Jewish man's job. They didn't go to synagogue school primarily for that. They went to their dad. And by the way, by the way, I'd bet, many, I'd bet money that Mary knew the scriptures too because she was a devout woman and she probably listened to her father. But in those days, women were not taught to read. And men were. Joseph had access to the scriptures. He could read them. He could share them with his son. And so I, I, I promise you, every night at bedtime, around the dinner table, at, 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 in the workshop, as they were planing some wood into boards, as they were walking along the road from Nazareth to Cana or Nazareth to Sepphoris, Joseph would tell Jesus, Here's what it says in Deuteronomy. Here's the story of Abraham and Sarah. Here's the story of Isaac and his sons, the patriarchs. And so when Jesus is 12 years old, he's in the temple and he's confounding the priests because he's so knowledgeable about the word of God. And early in his ministry, when the devil meets him in the wilderness and tries his best to get him to sin, Jesus is able to walk away from every temptation by quoting the word of God. He learned that from his dad. But there's a third thing. A third reason I believe Joseph was a good father. Matthew 5.20, 
Jesus, speaking during the Sermon on the Mount, says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And I can't prove this, but my opinion is that when Jesus said those words, every jaw on that hillside dropped and people took in a sharp breath because to say you've got to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, it's, it's like me today saying you can't get into heaven unless you're stronger than every offensive lineman in the NFL and you've got more money than every person on the Forbes 500 and you've got a higher IQ than every person on faculty at MIT. You're lost without that. And we'd all say, okay, I guess I'm lost. Because he was talking about the scribes and the Pharisees, men who, whereas every Jew fasted on the Day of Atonement once a year, the scribes and Pharisees fasted twice a week just because they wanted to show how righteous they were. Every Jew tithed 10% of their income to the temple to support the, the, the priests and Levites. The scribes and Pharisees went over and above. They knew all 613 commands and they were meticulous about following them. So everybody's saying, okay, how can we be saved if we've got to be better than those guys? I mean, those guys are the very definition of what a Sadiq looks like. And Jesus addressed it again later in Matthew 23. He said, yeah, it's good that they follow the laws. It's good that they tithe. It's good that they fast. I hope they keep doing those things, but they need to live with justice and mercy and faithfulness. When they see a sinner, they need to show them mercy. When they see a person hurting, they need to reach out to them. See, if, if you're going to church every Sunday and you're following all the rules, but you don't love people, especially people who are hurting, then all your religion and all your morality is a spit in the eye of God. It's a mockery of faith. And I just think that when Jesus said those words, he was thinking about his dad. He was thinking about, okay, my dad never get a title. He was never looked up to by society. But when my mom and me needed somebody, he was there. When God said, take care of this woman and her baby, he stepped up. And that's what it means to be righteous. So I want you to ask yourself that question we asked earlier. What does God want me to do that I'm not doing? And ask it sincerely. And I don't know, because I'm not the Holy Spirit, there may be somebody who, after they pray a while, will say, what God wants me to do is, is, a, is actually start reading the word of God for myself, or actually start giving of my tithes and offerings, or actually serve in a ministry, or, or he needs me to confess this sin, and repent of this bad habit, or, or change this area of my life. That may be, but my own opinion and, and impression is that for most of us, the answer to that question is not gonna be a habit uh, or a sin, but it's gonna be a person. It's gonna be God saying, you know I brought this person into your life for you to invest in, for you to reach out to, for you to love. I mean, that's why here at our church, we're all about transforming relationships. God created us not to just occupy a pew, not to just be furniture in First Baptist Church, but to take what we learn here and use it to invest in the people around us. And some of those people are gonna be Christians somebody going through a time of grief or somebody who's worried about something that's happening in their life or somebody who needs help. But some of them, a lot of them won't be. And you get a chance to be the light of the world to them, to love them the way nobody ever has and to draw them one step closer to salvation. See, true righteousness is a life that says, whatever it takes, I'm gonna love the people God places before me. Now, what's gonna happen if you don't do that? 
What's gonna happen if you say, Jeff, I got enough on my plate. I'll just keep coming to church and be an ordinary person. You know what's gonna happen? Nothing. Nothing. God's still gonna love you. That's, that's what grace is. He's not gonna cast you out of his family because you didn't step up. In the same way, if Joseph would have said, nah, God, I think I'll just be a carpenter and have a normal family, nothing would have happened. He would have been an ordinary person. You and I never would have heard of him, but he never would have experienced the power of God manifest in his life. He wouldn't have been a part of the process of salvation that has changed the world. Remember, Jesus is the ultimate example of what we're talking about. Everyone would have understood if he never would have come into this world. In fact, I like to think about this sometimes. What do you think the angels said to themselves when they first heard about the the plan that we call Christmas? Wait, the son is gonna go down there? He's gonna become one of them? And he's gonna die? Why would he do that? I don't think any angels talk back to God, but I'm sure they were thinking to themselves, this doesn't make sense. And yet he did it. He did it when he didn't have to. He did it, and that's the only reason you and I are saved, because he came into this world and because he died in our place. And if you want to say thank you for that, and you should, that indescribable gift, the best way is to obey him and to say, the next step you tell me to take, Lord, I'll take it. So would you bow your head, close your eyes? I want to challenge you to to do business with God right now, to If you don't know what that next step of obedience is, some of us know, some of us, it's been hanging over us for a while now. We've been avoiding it, procrastinating. But if you don't know what the next step of obedience is for you, ask God to show you. 